Um, so I'm sitting here with John Marsden, um, and we're about to uh, do our uh, promised interview. I'm so delighted to see John again. Um, he quite often finds himself in hot water because he does steer away from mainstream ideas quite a lot. So let's start with the most controversial one, and that is your ideas on bullying, um, because you did cop quite a lot of flack at the Byron Writers Festival and various other places. First of all, tell us what you said that people have taken against, and, um, and what's your defence? Well, in a majority of cases of bullying in schools, it seems to be more about kids giving feedback to other kids, but doing it in a rough and ready way because they're not sophisticated enough to express what they're really trying to say. So if someone calls someone else a dobber or an idiot or a dickhead, then that's their way of saying that your behaviour and your attitudes are really uncongenial for us and we don't want to mix with you whilst you hold those views or while you behave in those ways. And that means if you understand that, you've then got a choice. You can change your behaviours and attitudes or you can think, no, bugger that, I'm going to keep going the way I am. But so, uh, I mean, obviously there is, you know, wholehearted, serious bullying uh, based on race and culture and those kind of things. Are you trying to separate that out from what you're talking? Or are you, oh, yeah, are you saying the kind sure. of bullying you're talking about is, is the largest section of bullying? No, I'm, there are so many different types of bullying that the word itself has lost its meaning and would be better not used because it's used to cover such a variety of situations that it doesn't really have meaning for us unless we unpack each situation case by case, which is what I do as a school principal. I'll spend hours every day talking to the witnesses, talking to the participants, trying to understand the dynamics of what's happened before I rush to judgment and say, OK, this is bullying. And sometimes it is, but more commonly, it's people just expressing a sense of dissatisfaction or anger at the way someone's behaving. And so if they can find some common ground and move forward together, great. And sometimes they can. Sometimes that's not easy at all. So let me uh, put this baldly, because the thing that got under most people's skin was that you said that a lot of bullying is due to the unlikable qualities of the person who's being bullied. Now, yeah. I mean, do you kind of stand by that? Because there's been a big yeah, backlash against that idea. Of course, because if someone's got unlikable behaviours, for example, they won't share their things, they take things from other people, they copy someone else's work and hand it in as their own, they're cruel to other people, they make sarcastic, demeaning comments to them, yeah, they are unlikable behaviours and they will attract unpopularity. But they, they mostly sound like the qualities of a bully, actually. The sort of things that bullies yeah. do, the unlikable qualities of a bully sounds like what you're talking about. Well, Not the other way around. But one of the things to understand about bullying is that people, humans by nature, will choose their preferred weapon. So if you're good with your fists, but not good with words, you will choose fists. If you're good with words and not good with your fists, you'll use words. And so those quick-witted kids who use language skillfully but cruelly will be unpopular. And the kids who don't have that ability with words may well respond with fists because that's their preferred weapon. That's their weapon of choice. Now, I'm going to move on, because the book's about a lot of other things, but let me just get you to respond to this one. Um, you know, the ANU academic um, that's written most about this says you've got a deeply flawed understanding of the idea of bullying, and that's dangerous if it gets out there. Yeah, I'm laughing because I've been 
horrified by the views of several people who hold chairs in Australian universities and who have made statements which really belong on tabloid television or in tabloid newspapers because the strong impression I've had is that they haven't read the book and they haven't tried to understand what's going on in schools but people who are at the chalk face, literally and metaphorically, except it's a whiteboard face now, who are unpacking this stuff every day and dealing with these dynamic problems will have a better understanding than someone who sits in a remote place and does a piece of research and then makes all their judgments based upon that. It's really um, a big problem we have with the universities that the research they do is often quite otherworldly. It's not helpful to us when we're dealing with the everyday situations that we have to deal with in the schoolyard. Okay, the art of growing up, um, one of the, well, there are many of it, there are many core elements of it, I suppose you could say that, but one of the core elements is bad parenting. Um, give yeah. us your sense of what, what, what does bad parenting mean uh, in today's context, because you actually give it a, a kind of modern context. I don't think many people would probably get on to what you're saying without hearing it from you. Well, again, it's one of those terms which is so broad because it covers such a huge range of possibilities, from someone burning their baby with cigarette ends to someone bashing a child or, uh, and all the way across to people who are over-loving, over-obsessive and over-controlling. So the people in the second group would justify their behaviour by saying that they are caring for their child, they love their child deeply, and this is how they show it. But that kind of obsessive manipulation of the child's life and that over-controlling attitude to the child is counterproductive. And that will result in children who are not able to function effectively, right through childhood, right through adolescence, and as adults, they are kind of doomed because they lack resilience, they lack the inner strength that adults need, and they lack the range of abilities that we need to have successful lives. For example, they don't have a range of solutions to a problem because their parents have solved every problem that's come along. Are you talking about what is colloquially known as helicopter parenting? Yeah, helicopter parenting. I call it curling parenting after that obscure sport where people carefully smooth the way for the boulder as it goes along its... It's uh, ice trail. They, they clear away all obstacles so their yep. children can have the perfect path in life, whereas perfection is not life, actually. It's not how it works. No, good parenting means giving your children space and leaving them to it, standing back, just letting them go. And, yeah, they'll have problems. They'll graze a knee or they'll come back with a bruise or they'll come back upset because someone's, one of their friends has dumped them. But that's life. And childhood and adolescence is the time when you start to get used to those situations, find ways of dealing with them, find strategies that will improve things, rather than running to your mother or father every time those things happen. We have had an epidemic in the last 10 or 20 years of anxiety and panic among teenagers and children, manifested in such ways as 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, locking themselves in a toilet or hiding behind a tree and ringing their mothers or fathers or grandparents to come and get them because they've lost a textbook or they've lost their pencil sharpener or they can't find the room they're meant to be in for science. Now, you seem to find the root causes of that in a kind of broad anxiety in the community, um, anxiety in the Western world, actually, about what's going on. Um, can you actually go that far? Is, is that somehow reflected in parenting styles? Yeah, there's a tremendous fear 
There was a great British philosopher, I think it was Hobbes, who said at the end of his life that when he looked back over his life, he realised that the dominant passion was fear. And that's very much the case for 21st century parents and children. People are fearful about the future of the planet. They're fearful about the environmental damage that's been done. They're fearful about the political leadership. They're fearful about the fact that the people we used to trust because they wore badges like priest, bishop, teacher, school principal, doctor, psychologist, whatever, so often those people have been shown to be flawed in very dangerous and d destructive ways. And so the fear is understandable, but if we let the fear take us over and control our lives, then we're just going to get into even bigger problems. Is that part of the philosophy of your schools um, to encourage not necessarily uh, foolhardy risks, but risks, encourage children to take risks with their lives, to explore alone, to go out alone into the bush. I mean, these things seem to be central. How important is that as part of a, a child's education? It's absolutely vital. And if you don't get your hands dirty, both literally and metaphorically, when you're a kid, then again, your adult life is in serious trouble before you've even reached the age of 12. So you have to get out there dig a vegetable garden and plant the vegetables, go and explore the bush, go down to the creek, make mud pies, watch the bees, watch the insects, study the birds, follow the animals, check the animal poo out and see what they've been eating. You've got to do that stuff in order to be a real person and to have contact with the real world and to start to grow in wisdom and understanding and insight, which are so essential if you want to understand so humanity. What, what are the limits then, uh, John? I mean, we heard about your bomb-making class, and uh, like I said, uh, ASIO bureaucrats might one day learn about that and <laughs> think maybe that's not such a great idea, but um, what are the where, where do you set boundaries and limits in that kind of environment? All these years I've been wanting to correct you in something, and I've finally got a chance. It's not the bomb-making class. It's called Explosions Club, which is obviously very, very different. Yes, but you can't really make explosions <laughs> without building a bomb though, can well, you, John? No, there are a few bangs, I must admit, and more than a few. But, um, yeah, of course there are limits to all this, but we do have to, time and time again, battle with the fears of parents who, when they enrol their kids in the school, because it's a bush campus, will say to me, but what about the snakes? And what about if a tree falls on them? And I'll say to them, the most dangerous part of being at the school is the drive to and from school in the morning and the afternoon. That's where you need to be on your guard. But the rest of the time, those fears we have of that great unknown area we call the bush are largely irrational. The chances of being bitten by a snake or hit by a falling tree are minimal. And so to protect our children from physical injury and to make that the be-all and end-all is to follow a false trail and to cause emotional damage and social damage to them because physical injury is not the worst thing that can happen. Everyone can cope with black eyes and a broken arm or a broken leg or whatever. I've got one final question for you. You would have been aware of one of the kind of key elements of Vision and Voice, the conference, is the empowerment of students within their own schools. That is to say, to give them some say or authority over their own education, and that authority gives them a kind of sense that they are also in control of their education to some degree. What do you think about that idea? Oh, yeah, it's a nice idea. I've yet to see it happen in a meaningful way because most of the power that's supposedly given to students is superficial and cosmetic. So they get to vote on whether the school canteen serves, I don't know, 
parsley with the sausage rolls or not. They're not even allowed to have sausage rolls, so that's, that issue wouldn't come up. But the real issues in schools are to do with the subcultures. There is a, a professed culture, which the school apparently has, but what is more powerful in most schools is the subculture or subcultures which are controlled by students and which are often completely invisible to authority figures. And so unless you've got a healthy subculture and unless you've got some knowledge of that subculture and some understanding of it and how it's working and who's determining how it works, then the school will continue to be a toxic and difficult environment. Um, I'll just say one last thing, which is, had I, what, could I turn back the clock? I would have loved to have come uh, to one of your schools. Uh, my school had none of those characteristics um, that you're talking about, and um, it's a it's great shame, I think, but I would have loved to have done that. We're not doing anything weird at all. We're just doing common sense, obvious things, but we're somehow classified as alternative, even though it's all very straightforward and, and just, yeah, common sense. Okay, John, as you know, is here to uh, also to sign his book, The Art of Growing Up. Um, plenty of copies around if you'd like to read it. I'm going to vacate the stage now for various others who are about to use the interactive stage. Please give a huge round of applause for John Marsden.